Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. If you want to turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes 4, that's where we'll be. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all of his labors. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This is also vanity and a grave misfortune. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. But if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be a king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw the living who walk under the sun, and they were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come after will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. You know, it's been long theorized that you and I are only six handshakes away from anyone living on planet Earth. It's a man by the name of Stanley Milgram who originally coined the term six degrees of separation in 1967, or you may have heard of it called the six handshake rule. The introduction of this term by Milgram encapsulated a staggering new reality that was true around the world. Our new globalized reality that included air travel had made the world a much smaller place and made the world a much more quote unquote connected place too. But a lot's changed since 1967, and the arrival of the internet age would make the world even smaller and make the world theoretically much more connected as well via social media platforms. As author Mark Sayers put it in his book entitled A Non-Anxious Presence, he said, the internet overcame the tyranny of distance. And it's true that Google can translate the communication I have back and forth with the Ukrainian pastor, which otherwise would have been hindered by a language barrier. And it's via a live stream that we could watch the war play out today in real time in Ukraine. It's even via a social media platform that we could listen in on or hear from global leaders around the world just by logging onto Twitter. The internet has changed so much of life as we know it, including bringing the degree of separation, according to the French mobile carrier O2, down from six people or six degrees of separation to just now three in the digital age saying that there's just three degrees of separation between you and anyone else alive on planet Earth right now. However, we're all aware of a reality that's beginning to be referred to as the loneliness paradox. Think about this. I'm sure you found this to be true, that all the time online can connect us in many ways, but here's the paradox. 
it can also leave us feeling incredibly isolated. You see, as modern people in the globalized, interconnected world we find ourselves in, our question really is this. Why is it that we're so connected and yet so lonely? No, really, think about this. Why are we so connected and yet so very lonely? In fact, we're the most connected era in human history. The only time where they were closer together was Adam and Eve's own family. And yet we're the most isolated, lonely, and depressed generation on record. And those that we would assume are even the most connected because of their digital footprint on social media platforms, the youngest of generations like Gen Z are the ones who are feeling this deeper than the rest of us. They're simultaneously so connected in the world and yet feeling so isolated. I recently had someone send me an article uh, or a publication with the headline, Gen Z are the loneliest generation research finds. And if you're questioning, well, how did we get here? Maybe this article can help to put some of those pieces together. It was entitled, How Tech and Social Media Are Making Us Feel Lonelier Than Ever. And I'll quote to you from the article, Internet-related technologies are great at giving us the perception of connectedness, says a Stanford University psychiatrist who's written about the intersection of psychology and tech. The truth, he says, is the time and energy spent on social media's countless connections may be happening at the expense of more rooted, genuinely supportive, and truly close relationships. The article concluded with this question. If we know through all these studies that the root of happiness is relationships, why are we letting technology deceive us into thinking that we have more than we actually have? It's all the while The Guardian is reporting that scientists are simultaneously working to develop a pill for our loneliness. The reason being is that the trouble, and I quote, is that chronic loneliness doesn't just make you feel terrible, it's actually terrible for you. Loneliness elevates our risk of developing a range of disorders, including cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative diseases, cognitive decline, and metastatic cancer. It also weakens the immune system, making us more susceptible to infections. Left unattended, even situational loneliness can ossify into a fixed state that changes brain structures and processes. Or according to the UK uh, research, a massive research study that was done, the conclusion that was entitled about human loneliness and social connections, they said that loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's a loneliness epidemic it's now being referred to as. And again, the irony is that we are the most connected era in human history, And yet we're logging in all of a sudden and calling ourselves the most lonely one. With friendship now being defined by clicking a simple button to follow someone. With meaningful community being traded for a Facebook group you belong to. Or true companionship feeling less appealing than having influence or a following. Because that's now what the society around us has not only valued but is monetized as well. And as we've been walking through Ecclesiastes together, we've been asking, along with the preacher, remember the voice of Ecclesiastes, we've been asking, what makes for the good life? And the truth is, for many in the world today, their experience under the sun is lived with the belief that if I only had more influence, well, then I'd be satisfied. If I only had more influence, then I'd have a following. And with people's admiration, which would leave me feeling significant and secure, like I finally matter, well, then 
I, I need to feel more connected, to have a bigger, broader influence, for me to feel less lonely and experience finally the good life if I only had more influence. You see, the preacher that will be for us, a spokesman and figurehead who today yells back at us, no, you won't. You won't be more satisfied. And if you'll notice, the preacher has already told us, remember, that there's nothing new under the sun. And although a digital age and the internet age and the age of social media are a new phenomenon, people's struggle with loneliness has always been present and people's drive for significance or for influence or for fame as an attempt to end their loneliness is an age-old tale. But it's in the words of actress Claire Danes who said, fame doesn't end loneliness. And we're still seeing that even with people, so many around us, reaching and grasping for it, using the internet in a way that's become so very destructive for their own lives. Now, let's be clear. Our modern desire for influence is a malformed desire in the place of real relationships. I say that because they are all about influence, a desire for influence and significance like that. They're all about what you can get and extract from other people. Whereas true companionship and community are so different from that because a desire for them is about what we can give and share in together. And the desire for influence is what the, the preaching king here begins to display for us. He's describing someone who works relentlessly to get to the top. And it, in verse 8, he says, But there was no end to all of his labor because he was never satisfied with all that he had amassed. He never felt that he arrived, so he couldn't stop. He's burning the candle at both ends, though. He never slows down, the end of verse 8 tells you, to realize that he's all alone with no companion in sight, with no one to share it with and no one to leave it to. And then he makes the statement that we're used to seeing where he says, it's all Hevel. Remember, it's, it's an enigma. It's like a puff of smoke. It's here in an instant, gone in the next, but also like a puff of smoke. It can't be grasped. All of society has always said, if you can get to the top, that's the place to be. And, that he's, and now he's looking, though, and saying, but those at the top are still so lonely. Those at the top, they're still so empty. Those who reach the top, they sit alone. You see, he'll finish our little section by saying, talking about, beginning in verse 13, that it's better to be a poor but wise youth than to be a king without a companion or advisor. And then he explains that one day that prominent and influential king who's reached the top, that he'll be replaced and then forgotten about. And that his successor, it might even be that same uh, impoverished young man. And good for him. He's lived the American dream from rags to riches and everyone has loved him for it until that is he gets to the top too and finds that he no longer has a fan found around him. It's vanity, he says. It's all an empty pursuit. Everyone was hanging on to his coattails as he fast-tracked his way towards success, but then he found that no one actually cared about him. Once he arrived, they had all vanished. They were all gone. You can be sure of this. Loneliness is not a new phenomenon, nor is the empty pursuit for power and prominence that has a tendency to leave so many so lonely. But right sandwiched in between those two things, those two statements that he's making uh, about fighting to get to the top at the expense even of relationships. And, and then the second statement where he gives the illustration of these two people, where, where he's saying that then all of a sudden you're alone at the top and forgotten about once you get there and no one cares anymore. He's talking about just living so isolated, sandwiched between it. 
the preacher pushes you and I to find yourself some real friends, some true companions. When he says it this way, he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls. For he who has no one to help him up, Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Remember for a moment how we got here in our journey through the preacher's message in Ecclesiastes. Remember the the preaching voice in Ecclesiastes, he's assuming something. He's assuming that all that is seen is all that there is. That there's nothing beyond this life. He calls it life under the sun. He's living with the belief that there's nothing beyond the sun. There's nothing after a grave. There's nothing beyond this life. And he's asking the question alongside of all of us, what makes then for the good life? If this is all there is, how do I live it to the fullest? And you remember he's tried wisdom to plunge the depths and find meaning for life and he found none. And then it was pleasure and parties. And then he poured himself into his work when that didn't satisfy him before considering that the march of time moves on with no way to control or stop it. And remember this endless cycle of injustice playing out, not just before our eyes today by those in power, but all throughout the ages. It's the rhyme and rhythm of time inside broken, fallen, splintered creation that we find ourselves in. But then from injustice, from positions of power, you remember that our preacher slows down to point out that envy, it's all happening because envy breeds in the hearts of men. And now he will highlight the byproduct of it all is that it leaves people isolated and empty. Last week, Danny gave a great definition for envy, calling it the resenting of others for their good fortune. And I'd agree with him that that envy is as pervasive as it is ignored in our modern culture. I'd even add to that and say, I think in the hustle culture, it's even applauded. And yet the preacher's slowing down to show us just how broken it is. That envy, it's yes, present in all of us. And if it goes unchecked, it thrives and grows in all of us, swallowing us whole, robbing our joy, destroying our relationships, and leaving us, in the words of the preacher, chasing after, herding the wind. It's an empty pursuit, he said. You see, the preaching king of Ecclesiastes would agree because in the end he's saying that he looked around and saw that he reached his goal, but he was all alone and unable to enjoy what he had strived and worked so hard to attain. Because the driving force in his internal engine all along was envy that caused him to view every other person as a threat which is something the preacher's observing and seemingly almost speaking of in the third person as he's seen it in his own life. And he points out it wasn't all his fault, as is the case with the person he uses, whether himself or someone else, is exhibit A. He says that his loneliness was in some ways out of his control because he didn't have any family around him. Did you catch that? However, at least some of his loneliness was absolutely in his control because he's described as a workaholic whose drive for more did not leave room or a place for others to fit or fill. It's really the portrait of Ebenezer Scrooge. It's familiar imagery. You can almost picture it, that the preacher is painting here. Oh, congratulations, we tell him. You are the wealthiest lonely man around. The unnerving thing, though, is that we're actually a little bit conflicted when we think about it because we secretly still long to be a bit like him. 
or at least to see if it was me in his position with all of his wealth and prominence, if it would be different for me than it was for him. I recently read a beautiful book entitled Falling into Eternity by Josh White. Listen, please, as I read to you what he observed about our modern society. He said it this way. He said, the spiritual thirst that worship of self produces is as unquenchable as it is deadly. He continues, our misguided quest for satisfaction explains the collective grief and the emotional dissonance we feel when our celebrities take their own lives. It's not driven by our concern for the one who's died. It's about us. We've lived our fantasies vicariously through them. When a celebrity dies, our idolatry is exposed and its ugliness is revealed. By committing suicide, the celebrity rejects what we believe would make us complete. It communicates to the rest of us, sorry, there's nothing here. Author Norman Cousins said it simply. He says, our eternal quest as human beings is to shatter our loneliness. And it's true that the internet age and social media have promised us greater connectedness with others, but it's really left us with the opposite impact being the reality of our lives. That instead of being more connected, we feel more isolated. And we really shouldn't be that surprised because it's always been true that popularity does not equate to, it doesn't equal community. And popularity seems to be the best thing social media can hand us. And many have found that it's not the great, that great of a thing to really chase after at all. So our question for the day is if the modern malformed desire for influence has taken the place of real relationships, of true companionship and community, then our question for the day is then, then why, why would we follow after the world Or why wouldn't we instead fight for the antiquated desires that are seemingly hardwired into humanity? Why wouldn't we, why shouldn't we fight for community and companionship? Even if the culture around us is is demonstrating that they believe that they've evolved beyond their need for it. So I want to spend just a few more minutes before we celebrate Father's Day by hanging out together a bit. I want to spend a few minutes reminding you of three things. The first is this. It's why we need community. The first is why we need community. The second is where we should look to find it. And then the third is how we should expect to experience it. You see, the preacher's making the point, and it's a bleak one. Remember, this is what his job is is really to do here. You've got a narrator who begins and ends the book of Ecclesiastes. That narrator's purpose is he believes that you need to hear from the preacher, and the preacher believes that your bubble needs to be burst. And what he's doing here is talking about life in our broken, sin-splintered, fallen world. He's observing that for so many of us, it's a lonely existence. And if we play by the rules of the kingdom we're under, if we're living according to the rules of the world and following the crowd, then we'll find ourselves more and more isolated. Because even if we arrive at the top, which is everybody's goal, we'll find that we sit there alone. So what do we do then? Well, maybe we go back to pursuing community. So why would we need it? Where should we look to find it? And how should we expect to experience it? The first is why. Why we need it. Or do we even need it? I think we need it. So here's your why do we need it? Here's the answer. Design deficiency. Design deficiency is why we need it. The Genesis narrative is clear that when God created humanity, he made us, yes, in his own image, And simultaneously, he made us with intentional design deficiencies. I hope that you understand that when scripture says we are made in God's image, it really implies several different things. 
one of the chief things is value, intrinsic value for every image bearer that walks the earth. All of them categorically separate from the rest of creation have intrinsic value. That's one of the reasons. But one of them is also when it communicates to us that we're made in God's image, it's communicating that you are a relational being because within the triune Godhead, there was a relationship. You see, you and I were designed in his image with a need for community. After all, that's why God would say, let us make man in our own image. There was already a relationship in the Godhead. And so to be made in his image is to be made as a relational being. Now remember, this was before the fall, before sin entered creation and marred every aspect of human existence. In his book entitled Better, about Ecclesiastes, author Tim Chaddock, he put it this way. He said, look all the way back to the book of Genesis, and you'll see the account of the first man waking up to the fact that he didn't want to be alone. He wanted companionship, community, and a relationship. So God created woman. It's a picture of marriage, yes, but it is also the first picture of friendship and community in the Bible. Please hear me, the takeaway from the story or from that moment in the garden is really for you, whether you are married or single, the point of the story is that we need to be sure to understand that God created us for friendship and community. It's possible, I think, in our modern setting that we've potentially overinflated romantic relationships to the detriment and devaluing of genuine, healthy friendships. My friends, loneliness is the first thing God himself defined as not good amongst all that he created. Our loneliness reminds us of our design deficiency. It reminds us that God made us to need others and to need him. And all of that happened before sin entered the world. God made you, even in your quote-unquote perfect state, your whole state, he still made you incomplete. You still needed other people. You see, there's never been a time, either before the fall or after the fall, that it was good for man to be alone. Which means introverted or extroverted, God made us in his image and he is relational. And some might need people, the truth is, more than other people. But God designed us all to need others. To deny that in word or action is to argue with God and his word to your own detriment and really to make yourself your own God, saying that you're authority and you know better than him. And it's foolish. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, which I recently read and just, just loved working my way through, he said this, he says, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it, your heart, carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become instead unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and uh, perturbations of love is hell. Lewis was trying to highlight the reality that's true for all of us, that we've all experienced that to love someone is to be vulnerable, and to be vulnerable is to beg to be hurt. 
At least that's how it can feel. Even in the safest of relationships we've ever had, we've still been wounded in those places. But to not engage with people, to disengage, is to do a grave danger and damage to ourselves, to our own hearts. Because we were intentionally designed with a lack. There is therefore a dependence on community hardwired into each and every one of us. Which is why the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he says in verse 9, two are better than one. In fact, he references, they're, they're better in productivity. They have a reward for their labor. The idea is that of the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That we're better together and can produce more and do more, accomplish more, have a greater impact if we're working in a team. He brings up that there's help in time of needs and having a companion. That when you fall, they can lift you up. And it might just be not just physically when you fall, you're lifted up. It might be emotionally, it might be spiritually, that you're wiped out and someone is there to lift you high. Oh, that you'll find comfort, he says, that, that hold, you're kept warm. And again, it's more than just the, the literal that he's using here. This is poetic imagery. So when you're isolated, when you're lonely, when you're overwhelmed, that there's comfort, there's warmth with a companion. Again, in poetry, he also talks about safety and security is found with them, that two can withstand an enemy better than one could alone. He's emphasizing the great gift of a companion. There's an author, his name was Benjamin Shaw, in his book on Ecclesiastes entitled Life in a Fallen World, he said it this way, he said, the man who thinks he can make it entirely on his own is a fool, having others to help provide strength protection, comfort, direction, guidance, and many other things, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we all depend on others for almost everything. My friends, there are no Lone Ranger Christians, at least not in God's kingdom. He never intended for there to be. In fact, the preacher himself in verse 10, he says, woe to him who is alone. I think we know this, but why then do we try so hard to live out our Christian life and faith? alone? Why then do we have a tendency and a pattern in our lives for so many of us to push others away? Why do we see community as an option rather than a mandate? We can't say, you know, for me, I, I just follow the Bible, but I'm not really into the whole church community thing. We can't really say that because there's 59 one another verses in the Bible that clearly tell you that your life is to be lived with one another. It's to be lived together with others, carrying out God's mission and the purpose he's given you for your life. Why do we need it? We need it because of design deficiencies. Yes, I was made in the image of God, but I was made to need others too. But there's a second thing that I want to tell you, and that's where we should find it. So where would we find community then? If the world's so lonely, where should we turn? If it's apparently not the internet or social media, where should we go to find a place to belong? And I would say Exhibit A is meant to be the church because the church is uniquely a non-competitive community. I'm going to say that again because I really want you to think about this. The church is uniquely a non-competitive community. My friends, the truth is that you can go searching for deep community in any number of places and you might even find some. It might be in your neighborhood or in your HOA council meeting. It might be at the ballpark or the book club. It might be online or at the office with coworkers. However, I want to remind you that the beauty, joy, and gift of true community cannot really exist with any depth 
where comparison is present. And in the HOA meeting, there's plenty of comparison and complaining about the comparison of why are they letting their yard go or they're late on their bill, I'm paying mine, or in your office even, where people are climbing the ladder using even the heads of others as rungs on that ladder. The beauty, joy, and gift of true community cannot exist where comparison is present, which is one of the reasons that Jesus' kingdom and family is such a unique and powerful gift Because in Jesus' kingdom, the world system, it's flipped onto its head because greatness is redefined, isn't it? Because greatness is defined by service to others. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says it this way. It says, but Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man, it's Jesus' favorite self-designation. He's speaking of himself. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Please hear me just how unique. Just remember today how unique of a gift it is to be a part of a Christian community, the body of Christ, to be a member of the kingdom of God. We can find a depth of friendship and community here because we have found our significance and security in the fact that we are known and loved by God. So my significance and security in my workplace, like so many other people come to their work to find it, to earn it, to prove their significance, and then to earn their security. For so many other people, even in your neighborhood, you might feel those similar vibes playing out in front of you. Every social gathering we come into, people are looking to pull from it what it cannot give significance and security. But to step into a church, you're meant to, and yes, it's flawed, but you're meant to step into a place where people have already found significance and security from God himself because they are fully known and fully loved by him. Because their significance and security is already secured by what he did, therefore, we can find acceptance not only by God, but by each other without competition. It frees us from the need to compete or impress each other. It frees us from needing to one-up or climb over each other, which leaves greatness being able to be redefined by service to others in place of climbing over or stomping on top of other people. Do you understand what a unique gift you have here? You know, in the last couple of weeks, there are people in our church who have experienced this unique gift. This is Debbie Eaton's experience as so many of you rallied around her, not to prove something, but to love her and to serve her. And greatness is defined by that kind of service because that is what Jesus gave to us. How could we not reflect his love and generosity? It's the kind of care that others have received that come to mind for me personally, who I know are hurting and struggling. It's the kind of promise I could give a friend this week who contacted me and said he's back on the streets and and back using very gnarly drugs, and having, he feels like, no one left by his side. And he said, I'm so afraid to sober up and enter a rehab. And I told him, or assumed I understood what was going on, I said, well, is it because you feel like you go back to being incarcerated, you lose your freedom? And he said, no, it's because I'm going to have to face myself again, and I'm going to have to do it alone. It's a beautiful thing when we can say, that's not true. 
you don't just face it with God, but you face it with us because we're a part of a community who've already found significance and security, who already know that they're known and loved completely and totally by Jesus and who can now give that kind of love and grace that we've freely received and give it to others where they don't have to earn it. It's a beautiful thing for me to watch then as other people who know and love Jesus showed up in his life this week to help him through the process of beginning to pick up the pieces of his life and move forward. This is the gift we have in being a part of a community that's centered on the gospel. You know, in his message this last week, Danny mentioned that one of our core values as a church is perspective, that we gather to have our affections renewed and reshaped as we worship and pray and open scripture and spend time together. Or as we say, we gather to encounter God and connect people to a renewed perspective about God, themselves, and the world around them. But I'll just remind you today that having a right perspective about God, myself, and the world around me will lead me then to jump headlong into the mission of God for the world around me. Because my life is viewed so different, and because they're an image bearer that God loves and is pursuing, it will lead me to jump headlong into his mission. You know, in Ephesians, it says that God does give some to be pastors and teachers, apostles and prophets. But do you know that my job description is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry? I'm known as a minister, but really my job is to be the equipper. You're the minister. The ministry is entrusted to you. I'm more like a, a coach or a cheerleader. I'll lean into the coach thing more than the cheerleader thing, if you don't mind, if you're picturing things. But you're the minister, which means that the success of this church is not based upon what's said, sung, or done here, so much as it's based upon what you do when you leave here. Because God's entrusted the ministry to you. You see, as a church, we gather to effectively scatter. Our gathering is neither the barometer of how we are doing in health or success, nor is it our end goal. Remember today that ministry is neither a program nor a profession. It's a call on every person who chooses to follow Jesus. Yes, perspective is a core value of this church, as is mission, which we believe to be the natural fruit and byproduct of the transformation that takes place in our perspective and affections. And that our third value is community, because God hasn't called you to do anything alone except to believe, because only you alone can choose to do that. Everything else in scripture, he invites us to do together through the power of his Holy Spirit that indwells us. You see, God doesn't intend for any of us to fend through life alone as a person or as a follower of Jesus. But here's the rub. For many of us as modern Americans, we think a mark of maturity is independence. My ability to stand on my own two feet, no longer needing others to get by, I've finally arrived, if that's how others see me. Because of this, we can find ourselves so afraid, or at the very least, you'd probably admit we're hesitant to voice any struggle or problem or pain because we're afraid that it will be viewed as a weakness. And so in order to be viewed and perceived as strong and having it together, we have the tendency to struggle and suffer in silence, which only makes things harder and worse. But why do we think a mark of maturity is spiritual independence? When we weren't designed to function that way, we aren't intended to navigate our life or our faith alone. Spiritual maturity, the truth is, looks very different from suffering in silence because of pride. Scripture says that the mark of maturity or the fruit of God's Spirit being at work in your life, that it's love. 
which means that we are only as spiritually mature as we are sacrificially loving other people. I mean, if you want a little litmus test, if you want to know if you're really spiritually mature, then look at the love in your life and ask if it's costly. Because the fruit of the Spirit is to love self-sacrificially. I say that because real love is not the affirmation that is given from afar. It's a sacrifice that pulls the needs of another closer to you and puts their needs even higher than above your own. That's the kind of love Jesus has given us, and that's the kind of love we are meant to display to the world. My friends, we were forgiven and rescued by Jesus, and in that moment, we are made a member of his kingdom. We are a colony of heaven living here on the earth, and you are simultaneously brought into a family. You have been adopted with the Spirit of God now working in your life, transforming you, and a part of that transformation is affirming it to be true that you are now a child of God, according to Galatians 4. And you are also made now a part of his body. And as a part of a body, each person in part plays an important role. God has entrusted you with a gift. And although he gave it to you, it's not for you, it's for them. He's given you a gift of helps or hospitality or service or encouragement or giving or discernment or wisdom or exhortation or prophecy or mercy. But as a member of the body, although he's given the gift to you, it's not for you, it's for somebody else. My hope is that you would know the gift God's Spirit has entrusted to you and that you would come prepared to give those gifts to someone else each time that we gather. See, I think that without a mission, a gospel community has the capacity to devolve into nothing more than an inward-turned codependent gathering, which leaves a church being far less than it can be or was created and intended to be. Mission takes what can become an inward focus and constantly reorients it and shifts it outward and forward. Community then becomes the gift that lets us carry it out and enjoy it together, never alone. You know, for us as a church, we have a really, really simple ministry philosophy. And that's really the byproduct of us intentionally being a relational church. That's our goal, to be a relational church. And at the center of that ministry philosophy, you'll find our home groups. I mean, you'll also find the reason we have such a long greeting time is not because we're stalling and need more time to do something. We have such a long greeting time because we really do value community and feel like we need to stage it so that you see how important it is to us. And so we'll give you some of the time that you're willing to give us if you'll spend it walking around and meeting other people because we think it's just that important. But really at the center of our ministry philosophy, if we're a relational church, you'll find our home groups. And here at Olive Branch, we believe that that we may learn in rows, but we believe that we best grow in circles. Because of this, our desire is for everyone who considers them to be a part of them, this church. Our desire for you then is to be connected to one of our home groups because we believe it's where you experience the great joy and blessing of being known and loved inside this church. Our home groups are really the, the heartbeat and lifeblood of our church. And that's the reason why you've probably heard us say it before, that we believe we are a multi-generational church of home groups, not merely a church with home groups. A community is what you need, and you need it because God designed you with deficiency so that you were going to grow up being dependent on him and other people. Well, where will I find it? You can find it lots of places, but I think in its purest, most joyful form, it's meant to be found here in a church, in a church because it's a non-competitive community. But the, the final thing I'll just throw out there for you to consider is how do I experience it? 
But how do I experience it? I mean, by being friendly, by giving yourself to others, by giving yourself to God. I mean, I'm sure that we'd all admit that real friends are are very rare, but my hope is today that you would also agree that we need them by God's design. If you have them, if you have real friends, then thank them and continue to prioritize them. If you don't have them, remember the wise words of the Bible's ancient Hebrew wisdom literature found in Proverbs 18.24, where it says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. If you're looking for friends, initiate those relationships with friendliness. You know, a common complaint about churches and Christian groups from the outside, from outside of it, is that the church is harsh and judgmental. And if we're honest, that criticism is, is often true, isn't it? But a common complaint about churches and Christian groups, really from those on the inside of it, is often that they're clicky. And over the years, I've heard that so many times about so many different places, both that I've worked and other places that I've been to or other friends I've had in ministry, that that's been the complaint about where they're at. And I don't know always why people say it, that this place feels so clicky. I wonder at times, is it because they walked in and saw genuine friendships around them when they first entered the group and they felt like an outsider because everybody seemed to know and love each other and so the name they put on it was clicky because they didn't have the kind of bond yet that other people had invested in for weeks or months or years? Or is it because they're, they're a person who's sitting waiting for what I think is one of the most magical gifts in the world? It's the gift a kindergartner gives a new friend. When they walk up and just say to them, do you want to be my friend? Or is it because people really do walk into Christian communities that are genuinely closed off to others? Is it possible that maybe sometimes it is true? I want you to hear me say that a church cannot create a community for you. You have to be a willing participant in the process of you being a part of a community. There's an active role that you have to play in that process. And I'm telling you, on the authority of Scripture, it's something you need. Whether here or somewhere else, you need it. You see, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he touches on these realities when he pens that a threefold cord is not easily broken. The idea and imagery is of a central strand that has two cords wound and intertwined with it. And some suggest that that center cord is maybe a common interest. Others suggest that maybe this is addressing a marriage relationship and that thing that's brought into it to build it together as a child. And that is true, that having a kid, it does codify a home and a relationship. It's a gift. But the majority of commentators, really all throughout church history, they point to that central cord as being the presence of God in a relationship. And that threefold cord not being easily broken. Think then about the common thread amongst us here. It's yes, that we are known and loved by God. And it's that he has invited us into his mission to redeem and rescue and restore creation. That has the ability to build a powerful bond here. But if it's going to do that, it's going to be because we have to let go of a lot of other things. Our preferences. Some of the things maybe that we, we'd like to see or hope to see or, or wished were easier or people asking, would you be my friend, those sorts of If there's going to be the strength of unity here, it's going to mean that we have to release our preference. It's very interesting to me how many people will come to a church saying that they just need a community. And then when they hear that someone votes different from them, they leave. 
Or then when they hear that someone lives in a neighborhood that represents a different economic status than them, they're offended and they bail. I don't know that you're really shooting for or looking for or aiming at a true community if you can't be disagreed with or have some of your own insecurities touched on without reacting and saying, this is where I, I take my ball and go home and play somewhere else. I think a real community has to look different than that. If all we want is to be agreed with and affirmed in all of our opinions and have no one think or live differently than us, then we really just want to live in a self-affirming echo chamber. And I don't know that that's God's answer or hope for the world at all. Remember, please, and we're done here, that the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he finishes his message by making his points, by reminding us that even the prominent, such as kings, they rise to power and fame and prestige only to be replaced and forgotten. His final push on us in this passage is to pursue companionship and friendship rather than prominence and power because a loyal friend will outlast the admiration and influence we're prone to pursue. And in pursuing it, we often leave and lose the valuable gift of our friends. It's true that we don't make time for life and friendships when we are spellbound by the allurement of prominence. You know, there's an old saying that was penned supposedly by one of the early church fathers, Augustine, although the statement is not found in any of his writings. But the popular statement is this, that he who has God has everything. He who has everything but God has nothing. And I believe that Jesus' teachings affirm the second half of that statement, that he who has everything but God has nothing. Jesus' words probably came to mind for you where he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? However, I believe that the whole of Scripture really disagrees with the first half of that statement that he who has God has everything. Because God made us with design deficiencies that left us needing him and others made in his image. Adam is exhibit A, who even with an unbroken fellowship with his creator, he still found himself lonely and longing for more because God had designed him with that deficiency. My friends, Christianity is not a private pilgrimage. When man was united together in the garden, it was then that God said it was very good. My reminder to you today is to remember the gift and joy of community, of deep companionship, friendship, and to pursue it. My friends, since the fall, man has been on a solitary, endless search for meaning apart from God, while being intent upon exploiting fellow image bearers in the process. We will only find our designed intention and purpose together as we walk side by side with our Creator and Savior. And what I want to do today is close by celebrating the gift that we've received in knowing Jesus and the gift we receive in growing together as we carry out his mission and message to a broken and lost world. So I'm going to pray, and why don't you stand, and then let's worship together as we close today and celebrate that gift. So Father, we give thanks that we can look at our experience in a sin-splintered, broken world, and we can echo what the rest of the world around us is saying, that this is madness and empty that it's meaningless, that it's an enigma, it's, it's a puff of smoke that can't be grasped, that we can play by the world's rules and climb the ladder and find that we're still lonely.
But Jesus, things have changed in your kingdom. You've turned it all on its head. You freed us and transformed us. You've given of a gift to each of us of being known and loved by you and a great gift of being known and loved here because we don't have to compete or compare here. I'm loved because of your grace, Jesus. It's true of all of us. Not of works, lest any one of us should boast. I pray that that grace would transform the atmosphere of this church and each of our gatherings, whether in homes or here, that comparison and competition would be left at the door because all of us are loved and embraced because of Jesus' grace and that we would each love and embrace one another because of that same grace. So God, we pause now to celebrate that you've given us this gift and we remember that it cost you dearly. Jesus, you went to a cross. It's free to us. It wasn't cheap for you cross and then an empty tomb created this whole new reality that we live in, a kingdom and a family, a body. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.